Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. Well, that's been going on in Seahawk country. Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast on 1029thegame.com. Alongside Brian Perkins, I'm Chuda Newby. Amid coaching transition, perhaps transition of philosophies as well, and some uncertainty around the franchise of the Seattle Seahawks. The season obviously is well over, but there's plenty of intrigue and plenty of storylines that still uh, need to be unpacked ahead of divisional weekend in the NFL playoffs, Perkins. Let's just start. Let's just get right into it. Daryl Bevel was fired this week. Tom Cable was fired this week, signaling a changing of the guard offensively for the Seahawks. Chris Richard given a notice that he is free to seek other opportunities elsewhere, though it's not an explicit firing. But regardless, with Russell Wilson at the helm and a shoddy offensive line each of the past two seasons, the results just weren't there. Seattle feeling that uncertainty, feeling uh, that uh, dissatisfaction with their offensive per- production even though if you look at some of the stats under Daryl Bevel there's reason to believe that he was a very good offensive coordinator in some ways but big picture Pete Carroll felt like he had to make a change and he makes a change with letting go two of the guys that he trusted most in his time coaching in the NFL yeah I mean this is I think that's the most stunning part of this right is you know Pete has a philosophy that you know he is he has failed many times early in his career he developed a philosophy, and he believes you put the right people around him. You put the right people around his players, and there's going to be success. And he has multiple championships at the college and NFL level combined to prove that, to prove that point. So the fact that he fired one guy that's been with him since 2010, one guy that's been with him since 2011 in Seattle, that is, I mean, I mean that just goes to show you that I mean, clearly they thought that big changes need to be made. I mean, it was really stunning to me. I got to tell you, when you find out that news about especially Bevel, but even Tom Cable, that Pete Carroll, I, I never thought that he would be willing to to part ways with them. I, I really didn't. I, I wasn't convinced that that would be the changes that would be made. So you were surprised we by this? I was. I was. And then you take into account the other coaching changes, quarterback coach, defensive coordinator potentially happening as well. I mean, those things are surprising to me for sure. I mean, we're not just talking about a, a minor tweak here or there. You know, like, you know, you see teams in the offseason where one coach falls on the sword and it's like some position unit coach or something like that. And they go, well, we didn't play well at running back this year, so we're going to let go of our running backs coach and we'll be fine. You know, even though the offense was terrible. This is like clearly a we were not good enough. We have to be better next year, and so we have to make wholesale changes, and that's exactly what they did. Would it have been enough if it was just Tom Cable to go and not Daryl Bevel, considering the fact that Bevel was in charge of the pass game and Cable really had autonomy in the run game, and it was more of the latter that seemed to be hampering this team offensively? Because if you look at what Bevel did accomplish in terms of production, like he's been here since 2011 in 2015, Seattle's offense had a single-season record for total yards. In 2014, they set a single-season record, uh, a franchise record for rushing yards. In pass yards in 2016, they had three of the top five scoring teams in team history under Bevel's watch. So, you know, would it have been enough just to say, all right, Cable, I'm sorry, we got to part ways with you. We got to part ways with this zone run blocking scheme. You know, I'm just thinking out loud, 
we forget that Daryl Bevel was kind of hampered by circumstance. And that kind of limited his ability to to maximize, you know, what he could have done. Because I think the guy's a good offensive coordinator. I think that's been well established. He's not bad at his job. He just has, you know, he probably didn't coach as well as he could have in certain moments. There's no denying that. And obviously the shadow of Super Bowl 49 plays a little bit of a role in that too. But, you know, whether we, we were talking all the time about lack of personnel on the outside, lack mm-hmm. of having a tall receiver, you know, lack of run game to help complement the pass game. And you can't forget the unique skill set of Russell Wilson. While it is an advantage in a lot of ways, it makes it difficult to to come up with a conventional game plan and, and playbook for it, does it not? Yeah. I mean, look, Russell Wilson in particular is a unique quarterback, right? Uh, probably the most unique quarterback in the entire NFL that you have to you have to create a special game plan around him if you're going to build the offense around him. And I think that's where the disconnect is. I don't have confidence that Daryl Bevel can do that, personally. Um, and, look, I think you made a lot of really good points there with what you just said about this team and about Bevel and Cable. But at the same time, name me an entire season, an entire season since Daryl Bevel has been in Seattle that you felt good about the offense? Well, I don't think that exists. No. like, But I, I don't think that that's a... I mean, that's a good point. There, there's there been no level... I mean, I could point to really any team in the NFL, name of me a full season that you've been satisfied with the well, onsets. No, okay, even, even in Pittsburgh, there, they, there they talk about Todd Haley, and, and they've got great offenses. Sure, there are bad games here and there. And, like, everyone always hates the coordinators, right? Like... If there's a bad, if someone has a bad game, the coordinators are always the first. Are they ones the to get easiest blamed. scapegoats? Yeah, it's like the backup. Like you know, how, like the backup quarterback is like the the most well liked athlete in town. They always say, mm-hmm. like you know, with a team that has kind of a, a wishy washy guy, and they mm-hmm. think, oh, this guy will always be better. It feels like the coordinators are always like the opposite of the backup quarterback. They're yeah. the most hated. If you have one bad game. Everyone goes, well, Rashard didn't put a good game plan together. I know they've been top three in defense all year, but they gave up a 10-point lead in this quarter. It's just nuanced of a criticism enough to make you sound smart (laughs) to criticize the coordinator, right? Like, oh, you must really know football. You're criticizing the coordinators. Yeah. When in reality, it just kind (laughs) of often shows your ignorance. I totally agree with you. That is a good question then. I mean, you you and I both are very well plugged into social media, you more so in terms of connecting with the fans on Twitter. But, you know, how much of Bevel's – like, we got to separate perception from reality here, you know, and social media is all about perception. And the fire bevel hashtag, I know it was a real thing. Like, it, it was. grew over time and was a real thing, and there's a real faction of it because it's, I mean, it, but to be honest, like, that segment of fans that were just harping on fire bevel week in, week out, I'm sorry. It's just an ignorant, ill-informed group of fans, and that's part of being fanatics. It's part of, you know, being a fan is being irrational. I get that, but it's short-sighted. The guy was actually pretty good at his job for a lot of moments. So I, I can't I don't think that his legacy in Seattle should be viewed as one of failure at all. I, I do think Super Bowl forty nine played a role in it with the with the play called a pass and the idea of that, you know, how that went down the chain was Carroll decided to pass, Bevel called the pass play. And I think we both have agreed, you know, even though ideally you could still run the ball against anybody in that situation, the pass the decision to pass is not the worst one in the world. The pass play was a very, very risky one. And we we saw it again in Steelers Patriots a few weeks ago is a short rushed pass over the middle, tipped up the air, picked off. And that you could say is on bevel. That's where 
see, and that's where I'm going is I whenever I see anyone, you know, I get it like the jokes like, oh, is Pete Carroll handing the baton off or or passing it to someone while they drop it or something like, you know, like there's all these jokes about it and like, oh, they should have just handed it to, you know, everyone always says that, right? Like mm-hmm. they made the dumbest play ever, just hand it to Marshawn Lynch. And on the surface, like I felt the same way, but when you actually break it down, you're right. I had no issue with them passing the ball in that scenario, but they chose like the most idiotic, in my opinion, one of the most idiotic plays you can because you're passing over the middle, a quick pass, to a receiver that sees the field 5% of the time, 10% of the time maybe in Ricardo Lockett. So you're asking for a lot of continuity between a quarterback and receiver that do not play together and do not get a lot of snaps together over the middle. So well, I agree with you. I th- Look, long story short, when you're on the one-yard line, you try to take out as many variables as you can uh, for the big mistake. And unfortunately, I feel like they didn't do that. But you're right. That is going to be a big part of his legacy I think to a certain extent, unfairly so. But here's a fun here's a fun fact for you. This is uh, from Mike Sando. I love Mike Sando. From 2012 to 2017, the Seahawks were top ten in the NFL offensive and offensively in 13 categories: rushing yards, passer rating. These are just some. I'm not going to go over all of them. Is he is this explosive cum- plays cumulative from 12 to 17? From 12 to 17. Okay. They were they they're still second in the NFL. 2012 to 2017 in rushing yards, which is absurd and just shows you how dominant they were running the football, considering how horrible it was this year. But you don't know what you have till it's gone. That's I believe there's a song about that. Uh, Explosive plays, time of possession, passing touchdowns, completion rate. I mean, offensive uh, points per game. They're eighth. So there are a lot of stats here that you look at this and you go, wow, like net yards. You know, explosive plays, which isn't overly surprising because that's something they emphasize. But I look at this. Why don't we? Why I, don't we see those stats? You know, that's what I'm saying. I look things. at this and I go, man, Bevel coached this team to a top ten in 13 different offensive categories. Where the hell was that from 2012 to 2017? Because I didn't feel like, as a fan watching the game, and I don't think Bevel was bad at his job. Okay, but I never felt like the Seattle's Seattle's offense was able to put together an entire season where you felt good about what they did. I just never felt that way. Like, and yes, I get it. Like this year, the Steelers even they had the game against the Jaguars, right? Where Ben threw five picks, five in that picks, game. and he's questioning if he should retire. Yeah, he's like, maybe I just don't have it anymore, and this and that. And they're gonna play for the AFC title, most likely. Bad games happen, but a body of work overshadows one bad game when you reflect on a season. For example, we talk about the tw- the 2015 season, but we only talk about the back half of it. Because the front half of it was so bad offensively. And the, the second half was so good. And the second half was so good. So good. Russell Wilson, I mean, almost won MVP just because of how he played in the final, what, seven games of that season? Six six games, I think it was, maybe? I was after the bye week, right? Mm-hmm. They went crazy. So, and Doug Baldwin put up numbers that we haven't seen since Jerry Rice. Yeah. I mean. Incredible. It's incredible. But once again, it wasn't a full season. It wasn't like 2015 was great. Save two games. And not only was it not a full season, but when you talk about volatility, the seller of the season was really low. And yeah. the ceiling of the season was really high. So th- that's a much wider gap. It would have been different if second half of 2015 was historic and the first half of 2015 was average. But it was well below average. And I think that's probably what sticks in the craw of a lot of fans' minds. And, I, you know, perhaps rightly so. It's that when this offense looked bad, it looked really bad. It looked way behind the times. It just looked like they were incapable 
of fighting through any quality defensive opponent at times. Uh, incapable of getting past the 50-yard line in the first half. I mean, how bad did the first half offense look this season? Horrible. Horrible in the first and second quarters this year. And they've relied on a lot of fourth-quarter magic to, to get it done. And I, I do think, you know, perhaps that comes down to some game planning, but a lot of execution as well. But it, first half offense was not one of, uh, in terms of results, not a not a strong suit this year for Bevel or Cable. But that's my other thing. You know, how much can you put on Cable? Because the run game's got to be as much part of an offense as the pass game. Sure, especially with what Pete Carroll wants to do. But let me ask you this. From 2012 to 2017, give me one word to describe the offense. If you could describe the Daryl Bevel offense from 2012 to 2017, what would be the one word if someone said, how do you describe it? Can I give you my word? Inconsistent. I, I would say un- unpredictable. Um, Those two things are kind of similar in some they're, ways. They're, they're <laughs> similar in some ways, but but I guess mine leaves more of a window of Optimism. optimism. <laughs> Which very much describes our personalities, by the way. But uh, we're both using prefixes that are in and un, right? So <laughs> I think that that's the tone that you have to use with that that team. I don't I don't blame you for inconsistent. And that's where see this is how I'm this is how I'm gonna look at, at Daryl Bevel is he helped this team win a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. As a fan, you should be you should be grateful Shouldn't for that. Shouldn't that be the first line? You should be grateful for that. Shouldn't that be the first line of his bio? Yes. In terms of Seahawk legacy, he helped this team win a Super Bowl. And he did. Because it's a he Super did. Bowl. We forget how important it is to win a Super Bowl. The team won a Super Bowl. Yes. And and believe it or not, Bevel was a part of that. And the offense, at times when they had to step up big, they did. They did. They did. 13 and 3, y'all. Yeah, they did. But at the same time, I don't think I'll look at his tenure in Seattle as a whole as anything more than above average. I, I think that's fair. And I, and I know that those two things sound kind of contradictory, but you you look at the talent. I just feel like when, when we look back at the talent that this team had and the fact that, and, and maybe this is on, you know, Jimmy Graham, you know, and Percy Harvin had a migraine every other week, but... The, the the players that they brought in that they were unable to successfully on a regular basis integrate into that offense in the end fair or not goes back to the offensive coordinator and partially partially yeah you know, well that's why some of those guys just didn't kind of why I said fair or not too yeah, yeah I mean like Percy Harvin what do you even say about the guy a guy that was you know injured and then there's all the rumors that yeah. he was like fake injured and then he got but, a fight but you're with... right in terms of like if John Schneider goes to Pete Carroll and Daryl Bevel says hey look who I got for you here's a new toy yeah your job is to find a way to get the new toy to get along with the other toys that's your job mm-hmm. and to be fair that didn't happen with Percy Harvin although he helped the Seahawks win a Super Bowl in a strange way and it didn't happen fully with Jimmy Graham no there it, were flashes flashes especially late that looked that looked pretty good, but talk about inconsistency. I think number eighty-eight was one of them for yeah, sure. Yeah, um, we got we're pressed for time, so let's move on quickly to Tom Cable. What is the fact that he's moving on to? What does that mean for the offense? <laughs> oh man, I you and I were texting a couple days ago when the Bevel news came out, and then I was seeing some some scuttlebutt that they might be considering Tom Cable for the offensive coordinator position, and I was like, man, you think the resist? The resist movement uh, <laughs> protests are bad. Wait till you hire Tom Cable as offensive coordinator. They're going to overrun CenturyLink in Seattle. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty bad. I never saw those reports, by the way. So I thought you were joking no. the whole time. I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> like multiple people. They weren't saying that it was going to happen, but there were multiple people saying that that was a consideration. But obviously, that was wrong because not only did they not consider him for it, they they fired him. 
Um, I don't know if I'm going to look at Tom Cable in a positive in as positive of a light as I will Daryl Bevel. And tell me if that's fair or not, because this team did have its moments on the. And see, for me with Cable, I know he was the associate head coach. He was in charge of the run game, which was fantastic for multiple years. But in the end, for him, I will always judge him based on the offensive line. And the offensive line, at its best, was above average. At its best. In 2013 and 2014, Okung on the left side, Unger in the middle. This was a team that, you know, you had Sweezy out there. That was was at its best above average and acceptable and did enough. But I feel like in the end, the read option, Marshawn Lynch and Russell Wilson always made the offensive line look better. And when the run game went away, you really saw the glaring weakness that this offensive line can't do anything. And yeah. That, that what he's doing is not working. I, I, I saw that they had drafted 16 offensive linemen, I think, since 2012, and only two of them of those 16 that have been drafted have gotten really serious extended playing time. Um, maybe it's been since 2013. Um, but you think of all the rotating personnel and that's a lot on cable, you know, wanting the spark measurable guys that you can get late in the rounds and he develops into talents. But what happened to Reese Odiombo? You know, what happened to um, Terry Poole? What happened to all these fifth and sixth rounders, seventh rounders? these converted defensive linemen. You know, what happened to a lot of those guys? Where's the NFL production? What happened to the development of Mark Lewinsky? You know, what what happened? There's nothing to show for it. And I think there's got to be some accountability there, too. I mean, that's a lot of wasted draft intel. It is. And, and everyone says, and this was a, I think this was valid for the first, you know, for maybe a couple years. There's no talent on the line. I mean, there's no true talent. There's no, like, blue chip, you know, offensive linemen talent you couldn't say that this year I mean this is a team that's that has been spending in the draft in high rounds on linemen they traded for Dwayne Brown Justin Britt they just gave a lot of money to for a team that was pretty strapped for cash you know and I'm not saying that that contract at the time was wrong but to my point this offensive line look at this offensive line you had a former top five pick you had a first round pick you had a second round pick you had Dwayne Brown and you had Justin Britt. I mean, it's not like the. I mean, we're not talking about seventh rounders anymore. We're not talking about George Fant, who like played basketball most of his life. We're not talking about these guys. We're talking about legitimate, high end NFL prospects with the right bodies that have been playing the position for a long period of time in their lives. Okay, this isn't like a converted tight end. A converted defensive lineman that we always used to joke that, you know, oh, they drafted Frank Clark. Looks like I'm excited to see him play left guard next year. You know, we joke when he when they were drafted and things like that. This is, I mean, to me, the talent that Seattle had on the field overshadowed how weak Tom Cable was as a coach on the offensive line. I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's how I look at it. Marshawn Lynch, Russell Wilson, those two together kept defenses on their heels. Marshawn Lynch has always been top in the NFL in terms of yards after contact and things like that. And I feel like when push came to shove and the talent was no longer there, 
we saw the true colors of of how that offensive line performed under Tom Cable. I always forget, but when they moved away from using a fullback, too. You know, Marshawn was arguably at his best with Mike Robb. Yeah. At fullback. And even Derek Coleman was a serviceable fullback, too. Um, yeah, he's still in the NFL. Still yeah. in the playoffs. Yeah, where is he now? Playing for the Hawks. What? The Falcons. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm really confused. Whoa! That's right. Yeah, yeah. He Friday is, morning. He's playing for yeah. the Falcons. Yeah, um, playing for the Falcons. I was thinking Atlanta Hawks. I don't know why. I know. Yeah, I, I thought that's where you were going. And I was yeah. like the Atlanta connection. You're looking at me confused. I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> it's the Hawks, bro. But you know, yeah, I think you know, I know. I've been reading some some things. NFL changed its rules regarding chop blocks and things like that, which may have affected zone blocking which is what, you know, Seattle primarily implemented in their rushing attack. But there's still plenty of zone-blocking teams in the NFL that are running it well, like the Kansas City Chiefs are are exhibited there too. So not going to use that as an excuse. All right, in terms of uh, offensive coordinators that they could potentially look to from here on out, um, keep in mind, you know, Daryl Bevel has been the only offensive coordinator that Russell Wilson has ever known. Um, so he's going to have to get used to a new voice. Let's start just with primarily what what are the characteristics I I think that you know we should be looking for that Pete Carroll should be looking for what kind of characteristics would be great in the next offensive coordinator is it someone that is that has been established in the NFL that knows what it takes to win championships um, like are you looking for pedigree are you looking for intellect are you looking for the next up and coming young guy that just has dynamic written all over him are you looking for someone that can develop quarterbacks you look at what the bears just did in hiring mark helfrich's offensive coordinator it's not going to be his playbook right it's going to be matt nagy and it's not going to be helfrich's job to call plays but it is going to be his job to develop mitchell trubisky and this is the first nfl job helfrich has ever had you know should the seahawks should pete carroll be looking at something similar to that do you want someone just to get along with russell wilson and help maximize him or do you want to get, you know, some guy that's been established and knows what it takes to win in the NFL over a long period of time? I'm inclined to think that Carroll would want to go to the latter because of guys he knows. Think of all the networking that he's done at 66 years of age in the NFL. He knows everybody. He knows everybody's dads. He knows everybody's coaching and family trees. He can get somebody well established in the league. I don't know if that's the wrong answer, but... I, I think I see in your facial expression, I think a lot of fans want the next up-and-coming dynamic guy, right? And that would be 39-year-old John Filippo from Philadelphia. Let's play the word game again. If I could describe who, who I would want them to bring in as offensive coordinator in one word, unconventional. This is, once again... Could you say creative? When you say, yeah, creative, sure. When, when you say, like, it makes me cringe when you say, like, a guy that's been established and knows what it takes to win. <laughs> This is the football is is no different than anything else in this world. Okay, if you are not constantly innovating and changing your philosophies and ideals, in the end, you are going to fail. Russell Wilson is not Tom Brady. He's not Aaron Rodgers. He is seriously the most unique quarterback in the NFL. Okay, you have to bring in someone that is willing to adapt an offense around him. You're paying him twenty four million dollars a year. He's your franchise quarterback. I'm not saying you have to pass the ball every down, okay? That's not what I am telling you, okay? I'm not saying completely abandon the run game. But I'm hoping that with this move, what Pete Carroll has admitted to himself is that the way that I want 
the offense to be run is not working and will not work with the quarterback I have and the dollars that I can allocate to the offensive side of the football. I need someone that can come in and devise a system that is going to be more effective with the with the pieces that we have. I'm hoping that that's what this change meant for Pete Carroll, not, well, we need to make a change, so I'm going to bring in another guy who um, wants to just win forever and always compete. You know, not that those are bad philosophies, but you get where I'm coming from here. I, you need someone, in my opinion, to come in that is, I don't want, like, the, the name Brian Schottenheimer came up. And yeah, that, everybody loves that. I almost right? ran into traffic. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? Like, I'm sorry, but why is Brian Schottenheimer never ri- risen in the ranks? Well, I mean, wasn't he, he the next big thing like 10 years ago? <laughs> supposed to be, yeah. He, he, but to be fair, his offenses with the Jets went to two straight AFC title games, right? So he was the uh, assistant to Rex Ryan. Now, obviously, that team was built on defense. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, he, he's been in the postseason. And he got an unfair shake a little bit because, in the end, San- the Sanchez wasn't nearly as good as we all thought he could be. Well, and then he got Sam Bradford. Yeah, and, with and, ACL with, injuries. With and, the St. Louis Rams from 2012 to 14. Didn't work out quite well. And then he's been the quarterback's coach of the Colts, and he really hasn't ever had a chance to coach Andrew Luck. Um, he's kind of had a bad so run I, of luck. I don't know. Sure, no pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. But I saw that name. You know, I, I've seen Mark Tressman, and um, I don't mind Mark Tressman. Bad fit as head coach, but I think he's done some nice things as a, as a play caller. He's kind of like a North Turner. Currently, Better coordinator than he is head coach. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a long list of guys like that. Uh, Wade Phillips. Um, you know. By the way, uh, did you see any the, number? Of guys. Did you see the Panthers are basically their coaching staff is basically just the Turners. That's incredible. It's like half his family is on that coaching. How does staff. how does that happen? Is that not like nepotism or something? Or yeah, I don't know. But I don't know. I that that's that's interesting to me. Think of that. Think of the similarities real quick. This just came to mind. Ron Rivera, Pete Carroll. Defensive-minded guys, you know, Vero on the 85 Bears needs to rely on someone else to maximize his star quarterback. That's at a comparable age to Russell Wilson with comparable talent. Had an offensive-minded guy in uh, in um, Mike Shula, who 2015 Panthers were dope. That offense was lit. 15-1 and one for crying out loud. NFC champs. And they look great. Cam was playing great. Inconsistency. Marred their 2016 and 2017 seasons. Fell short wild card game this year, right? Missed playoffs last year. So, you know, I, and the, when I'm fleshing this out, there's a lot of similarities there. What does Ron Rivera do? He goes to North Turner. That's probably what's familiar to him. That's probably a guy he trusts. And it's, you know, he sees a lot of continuity in, in the offensive side of the ball with Turner's kids somehow, some way. Unbelievable. I don't know if I would love that if I'm a Carolina fan, but that is going to be a fascinating dynamic to watch in Carolina because that that's a pretty similar situation to what the Seahawks are in, is it not? It is. It is. Well, think about this. Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, and Russell Wilson are all starting over. That's amazing. I mean, they all are. New coaching staff. And stats. what happened to RG3? Those four guys were supposed to be the... <laughs> the, next the generation of quarterbacks in this yeah. league. But they're all starting over with new coordinators yeah. you know and new and in some cases with with luck a new head coach so i mean it's just kind of interesting you talk about three guys like if if you thought about star power in the NFL and big names i mean those three come to mind immediately right mm-hmm. along with like big ben 
Tom Brady, Aaron yeah. Rodgers. The, in the 20 something generation, it's those guys for sure. It is without and now a doubt. it's Jimmy G, but yeah. But you have all three of them, you know. I mean, it's just it's just interesting that all three of you talk about three quarterbacks that are considered elite, and all three of them need new offensive coordinators because the offense wasn't good enough. Now, Andrew Luck obviously didn't play last season, but I just think it's kind of interesting that. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me. It is interesting. Um, yeah. So, Sometimes it actually helps to think about the context of other teams in, in the league because we get so sucked into the immediacy of what's impacting the Seahawks and what, what can the Seahawks do to improve. And then you forget, like, the Packers are making huge changes. The Packers. Yeah. With Aaron Rodgers, who's also only won one Super Bowl. Right? And, you know, they feel the urgency with their championship window. You know, the Panthers are making huge changes. They feel changes. urgency, too. They feel the urgency. You know, this is kind of life in the NFL. Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson each only have two years left on their remaining contracts. You know, there's urgency with Seattle's window now, too. You you want John D. Filippo, if we were talking today, you know, he's the quarterback's coach with the Philadelphia Eagles right now. He's kind of the next quote-unquote up-and-comer now that you've ruled out like guys like Matt Nagy getting jobs in Chicago and what have you. Um, you would imagine that he's a really good quarterback developer, even though he's just 39, that's been on his resume, and he's done a lot. He's been credited a lot with the development and the resurgence of Carson Wentz, almost more so than Doug Peterson, which which is I, weird. I don't it's, find hard to believe, actually. Yeah. Even though Peter, the narrative around Peterson is that <laughs> the team is almost winning in spite of him, which I don't know is necessarily fair, but that's kind of the feeling around him. At least it's not. Peterson is not the innovator as much as some of his assistants, like Jim Schwartz and John DiFilippo are. Um, should the Eagles lose on Saturday, DiFilippo will be up for interviewing for a lot of different jobs. How how much do you want him to be the next OC? Let me put it this way. Did the 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 Bama Alabama just won the national championship they on did. a on a play that was like second in a mile, right? After a second sack was taken on first down. Twenty six from the okay. forty one yard line. Do you know what the name of that play was? I do. And do you know what type of play they ran? I do. It was a four verticals, and it's called Seattle. <laughs> what I do, whatever coordinator comes in, I do not want the four vertical play to be named after that that team. <laughs> it's because it works so well against them. So, and I know that that play won them a championship, but you get what I'm saying. It felt like Seattle's offense had become stale, uncreative. A lot of emphasis on just explosive, explosive, explosive plays, explosive plays. Ten yards down the field, twenty yards down the field. It's okay to it's okay to get seven yards. In the passing game, in six yards and five yards, it's okay. We've seen Tom Brady yeah. win a championship time after time doing that. It's kind of what NFL offenses are now: is so much checkdown stuff, you know. Well, and when your offense—I mean, this is the thing that just blew my mind about Seattle's. Like, when your offensive line is as bad as you are, wouldn't you want to get the ball out as quickly as possible? There, that was a fair criticism and a disconnect between what Seattle had on the offensive line and what their play calling was. Sure. So, whoever comes in, I just want them. Four years down the line to not have the four verticals play named after them. That's my goal. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly where the etymology of naming that play came from, but sure. I thought it was because it worked so well against the Seattle defense. Like what Denver did in week three, yeah. what Atlanta did. Yeah, sure. But you that, get what I I'm think, saying. I'm yeah. just talking about in theory. Like, sure. I, I, yeah. I, You're right. I doubt that they're like, oh, they run four verticals a lot. We're going to name it for, you know, Seattle. I, yeah. I agree. But, uh, but I, to be honest, I don't know. That. To, just, to me... Offensively, Pete Carroll. What Pete Carroll's philosophy is defensively has worked for a very long time, and it has continued to work. 
And I think that it's hard to question that. I know that the defense has fallen off a little bit, but that to me is agent injuries more than anything else. Because they run one of the most simple defenses in the entire NFL. They, you know, they've blitzed a bit more under Richard, obviously, but for the most part, they just run this base defense and say, we're going to be better than you. We're just going to be better and more disciplined than you. And you know what? It's worked pretty darn well <laughs> for the last six years, seven years. But And they can draft the for the defense and develop talent for that defense too. There's just a system in place there to produce defensively. I would prefer a young coordinator to come in that's creative, that can connect with Wilson and really tailor things to his strengths because Seattle has something special there and they need someone that can come in and create a system that is going to best benefit him because I don't think they've done that. Here's a question. Um, does the next offensive coordinator need autonomy in both the run and pass game and not have it be split up? It's a good point. Because my, I guess my question would be, why would we think the next, if the personnel stays the same, why would we think the next coordinator has any more success than Daryl Bevel did? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And you're right. I mean, you know, who's calling the run plays? Who's got, you know, who's in charge of the run game? Who's in charge of the passing game? I mean, I think that whoever is coming in at offensive coordinator should be able to pick who then his, is his offensive them. line coach yes. is. And, yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that once again, to me, this this was more in my mind. Like, what does this mean for for Pete Carroll's mindset? You know, that, that that's what all this change for me is is has really brought to to light for me. Is this means that Pete Carroll is ready to maybe loosen up the reins a little bit and allow someone to come in and really be creative. And he didn't think Bevel was a guy to do that. The only, I hope that's the case, but the only caution that I have with that is Pete Carroll feels the urgency. And this is kind of a resetting for him, right? And one of the things he preaches is, look, if you're going to do something, you've got to do it your way. You've got to be you. You've got to stay true to yourself. What's the point of attempting something great if you're going to be at war with yourself? Do it your way. That's the that's why you're the head coach. And if he says, all right, we're bucking up, we're doing one more thing, I'm doing it my way. You can't blame somebody for that because that's part of your job. You don't want somebody to be who they're not going to be. But if his way is old school football on offense, like a mic, I mean, not necessarily, you know, old school, but because I... I mean, maybe getting somebody more established at offensive coordinator might be more Pete Carroll's quote-unquote way than it would be trusting the next young up-and-comer. Mm-hmm. I think I think Mike McCoy or Mark Tressman, keep in mind Mark Tressman was the offensive coordinator of the 49ers in the 90s while Pete Carroll was the defensive coordinator of the 49ers. So they've got a relationship there. you know. And Tressman's had decent offenses that he was able to create with Joe Flacco in Baltimore, of all things. Um you know, even the Chicago Bears offense was fine when he was the head coach. He's just more suited to be a coordinator. And I don't I don't know if that would necessarily be critical. Like, what if tomorrow, what if next week, Filippo gets hired by, I don't know, the Bills just fired their offensive coordinator this morning. What if Filippo goes to Buffalo instead and says, I can do more with Tyrod and Shady than I can do with Russell Wilson. You know, and they have to hire Mark Trestman. I'd be surprised if someone said that. I would be too, but... I mean, I'm just saying. In theory. (laughs) In theory. Although Shady McCoy is a pretty nice asset. He is, but he's like 30, isn't he? Yeah. And he's like, he was like, 
half himself. I mean, he was like limping the entire playoff game. And, you know, Buffalo. <laughs> Hashtag Bills. Okay, but I'm just saying in theory, if if the Seahawks prioritize anybody other than Filippo, that would probably be a disappointment to us. But it would probably reinforce Carroll as saying, all right, I'm here to do it my way. Sure, but and and I agree with everything you're saying, but at the same time, like you know, you and I have both read Pete Carroll's books, right? We know about his philosophy and the the type of philosophical style that he has developed over years of trial and error, and a lot of error, right? <laughs> Early in his career, yeah. I mean, even going into USC, people were like, "Who the hell is this guy? Like, what? This is the big splash hire you make?" And yeah. of course, the rest is history. But you can still, you can still. As, as Pete Carroll, have your core philosophies and your core ideals while still giving autonomy to an offensive coordinator and allowing them the freedom to develop an offense. To me, the principles that he has, the the competitive, you know, the always compete, the the i the mentality that he has. To me, you can still have while allowing a change offensively, if that makes sense. I don't think that you need one has to be married to the other. Sure. I mean, I think that you can still have a philosophical style without um, having to do three yards on a cloud of dust, you know, style of football. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that he realizes that and understands that with the with the personnel that he has, I don't think that style will work. I just don't. I don't think that style will work again for Seattle. You know, it did work for their peak two seasons, but obviously the counter to that is Marshawn Lynch. At the peak of his game, Russell Wilson was not the pastor that back then that he is now, you know, and the defense is just slightly is not as dominant than it was in 2013 and 2014. 2013 was one of the best defenses of all time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not it's never going to be that way again. And, and Seattle, therefore you've got to compensate with different offensive philosophy than you had then. Seattle had two of the best drafts ever, like in the history of football. I mean, think about the guys that came out of, of 2011 and 2012. Think about those guys. And then even before that, Earl Thomas. I mean, you know, the year before that. <laughs> or no, was that that was the year before that, wasn't it? Yeah, Thomas was drafted yeah, was, in 10. Was 2010. And then Cam and Sherman, 11. So you had so much leeway offensively to not have to be as efficient because you had – one of the greatest defenses that we've ever seen in this league. That is not going to happen anymore. Even if Seattle is is good next year defensively, and I expect them to be, even if they're able to draft young talent, I that's not going to happen. So you have to be able to develop an offense to be consistent and to put points on the board. And you have a quarterback that can do that. Yeah. Well, we'll see what uh, ultimately unfolds. We'll also be keeping an eye on the games this weekend. Because that could obviously play a role, most notably. Yeah, you're, you're rooting for the Falcons, aren't you? I'm, I'm rooting for the Falcons for very, for various reasons, including Dan Quinn. Um, I just really root for that guy. Um, I, they're three-point favorites on the road. Yeah, I'm picking Atlanta. I'm picking Atlanta by two touchdowns. Maybe I'm buying into too much that Nick Foles just can't play, but I, I see a pick-six coming, and I see what Atlanta did defensively. Saturday night against the L.A. Rams. And my main takeaway was, wow, Atlanta is back defensively. No one likes to talk about Atlanta defensively as much as the inconsistencies Atlanta's had offensively. 
that defense is dominant, man, and they're they're just how are you playing lately matters so much in the playoffs. You have them winning by double digits. I have them winning by two touchdowns. Twenty four to ten is my score tomorrow. Wow. Go all in on the Falcons, man. They're going I, to the NFC title game. I think the Falcons are going to win by a field goal. Spread is Atlanta by three. Oh, look at me. I miss They call me Brian Vegas, Vegas. Perkins. That's what they call me. <laughs> they call me the square. The square is better. Uh, yeah, I, I think this game is going to be close. Just because I Philly's defense is really good. It has been. It's also been gettable. Second half of the season, it was gettable. Hell, Seattle showed that once. Yeah, and, and um, they especially the, in the secondary. On the D line, they're very good, obviously. Fewest first downs in the NFL, too, for Eagles offense since um Wentz went down. Right. You know, they're gonna have to run the football very, very well to give themselves a chance here. And they could. They could. I just see a I see a pick six is what is what I'm seeing, kind of changing the game in the third quarter. Saturday night, Titans Pats. That's a thirteen point spread. I think New England is going to be just fine in that one. Tennessee. Uh, yeah, I might not even watch it. <laughs> yeah, Tennessee <laughs> got honest. very lucky. Um, I got 37-20. Throwing that out there. Sure. Sunday morning, Jags-Steelers. I'm excited to see what the Jags defense does for Pittsburgh. They're not going to pick them off five times like they did in week five. But, no, they'll, do, they'll get them six times this week. But, yeah. Can they, the Jags, have a chance to win this game? No. Really? No. They don't have a chance. I think the way that, okay, the way that Bortles played last week, I think dictated how well their their run was going to go, honestly. And he was horrible. He was so Horrible. Bad. He had 88 rush yards, 87 pass yards. And this was not like, oh, they weren't setting him up for success. He was just like floating balls and missing guys. I mean, he was really, really bad. I watched that game, um, unfortunately. Yeah, he's and terrible. It wasn't like the Bills' defense was lights out, okay? Which, by the way, just rubs it in even more that he would, of course, be playing the best of his career against teams like the Seahawks. Yeah, he had that three-week run, and Seattle included, where he that just eviscerated teams. Seattle included. If he if he plays like himself and doesn't play like someone not like Bortles, Seattle's in the playoffs. And he, uh, a Titans defensive back said he's going to turn Tom Brady into Blake Bortles or something, or he wants to make him play like Blake Bortles. I was like, man, there's a lot of hate on Blake Bortles. Like a lot of defensive players. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think which they have a reminds. Chance, speaking of player on player hate, um, Cam Hayward of the, uh, or excuse me, Cam Jordan of the Saints, called Matt Khalil of the Panthers, uh, speed bump, speed bump McGee. I mean, Matt Khalil <laughs> of the, uh, of the who who did they just? Oh yeah, of the Panthers. Yeah, he called him speed bump McGee. Speed bump, <laughs> speed bump McGee. McGee. <laughs> Left tackle. There's a lot of trash talk going on. A lot right of now. trash talk. Had I like no one it. batted an eye because he was right. Yeah, but that's just so funny. Um, yeah, I, I think I'll take the Steelers, but I got to say I could. For the Jaguars' see, defense is legit, so it's very legit. Yeah, very very good. And selfishly, I'd love to see that defense against Brady. Um, oh yeah, I'm not rooting for the Steelers. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Got it. Got it. There is no way in hell I would ever right. root for the Steelers. But do the Saints have a chance to beat the Vikings in Minnesota? Yes. But I don't think they will. This is my field goal game. This, is, I think this is going to be a really fun game. Like, this is my favorite game. This of the is the one by far. Yeah, yeah, I am super jacked for yeah. this contest. I'm excited. That I, Viking defense is loaded everywhere. You know, Mike Zimmer coaching his ass off. What they've been able to do with Case Keenum, Adam Thielen, Stephon Diggs, Kyle Rudolph, and the Saints defense—the way that they've been playing this year—and then Breeze going for 370 last week and a couple touchdowns and. Kamara Ingram. I mean, what's not to like in this matchup? 
I I think Minnesota is going to win just because their defense is so good. Yeah. But it is hard for my brain to comprehend Case Keenum beating Drew Brees. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not that simple, right, which is why I'm picking Minnesota to win. But, like, we're talking about a Hall of Famer who has had a great career, who's been successful in the playoffs, has won a Super Bowl against Case Keenum. Case freaking Keenum, are you kidding me? I just, man, the the Vikings are just so good. And if they shut down the run game, I mean, I, I don't know how. I think this is going to be a good game, but I think it's going to be kind of low scoring and ugly. And I think Minnesota wins 2017. Yeah, I'll go 23-20 Vikings with a late yeah. field goal. I will say, you know, it's Case Keenum's kind of thwarted the common denominator in terms of how good backup quarterbacks are supposed to be all season long. He's been very good. But this is his first career playoff start. Right. Now, can he continue thwarting that narrative? Perhaps so. That'd be consistent with what he did in the regular season. But, you know, also there's the narrative in the playoffs, best quarterback wins. Best quarterback wins. And, you know, if you're in Vegas, you don't you don't bat an eye betting the Saints. Yeah. Because of the value, getting points, and you're taking Drew Brees over Case Keenum, and it's doesn't it doesn't get any more complicated than that. How big is this game, not only for the Vikings, but for Case Keenum? If you win a playoff game, at the very least, I mean, what kind of money does that bring you in? What kind of leverage does that give you negotiating deals? I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, a huge game for This him. is a big game. It's not only just like playoff worthy. A but team like, that still has Sam Bradford and Terry Brid- Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, Bridgewater, you would think, okay, you can't, you know, he's coming back, right? They're like, he might come back this year. And you're like, oh, cool. Well, he played this year. He played a couple weeks ago. He did, yeah, in garbage time, right? Yeah. So, but, but I mean, I'm just saying, like, when he was coming back, you were like, wow, they just need to bide their time. They have a really good defense, you know? And then when Bridgewater comes back, who knows, right? And now you're like, oh, he did, he got, who was that in Buffalo that Rob Johnson? Uh, yeah, it could be something like that. You never know. So we're both picking chalk for the weekend, including Atlanta winning on the road. That would set up Atlanta at Minnesota, um, which happened, I think, in 98 or 99. Wasn't that the Gary Anderson missed field goal for the Vikings? That was a Vi- that was when Chris Chandler led the Falcons to the Super Bowl. And Atlanta fans, they need something, you know? Think about God. It feels like heartbreak's coming at some point for them. 28 to th- yeah. <laughs> they're, they're due. It's been a week. 28 to 3 last year in the Super Bowl. And then now this year, you see the champion. Did you see the fan that like kicked his door down and like kicked a huge hole through it? I did not see that. I love sports, man. There's got to be a huge cross section of Georgia and Atlanta Falcon fans that you just feel for, especially that that game was in Atlanta. Crazy. And the AFC will both have Steelers Pats. And uh, that will be fun. I mean, we haven't seen that before. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no retreads there. Yeah. I'm rooting for the Jaguars uh, yes. and the Titans. I'm rooting for the Jaguars to face the Pats for the matchups. Oh my God. I think it'd be fun. Could you imagine? I will all- not watch Jaguars Titans if that happens <laughs> for the record. Not AFC South. Yeah. An all AFC South uh, championship no. game and an all NFC no. South championship let's, game. Let's not. Could it happen? No. Let's get 20. Do you believe in miracles? Let's get 2018 off to the right start. Anything is possible. <laughs> On that note. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Tudor Newby. We'll be back again next week talking about the results of this weekend and other further coaching staff news and notes as we hurdle ourselves closer to Super Bowl 52 in the combine after that. This is the Game Plan Podcast on 1029thegame.com.